part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. I pray that you have your Bibles this morning. You can open up to James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. If you weren't with us last week, we looked at uh, James 1.1. We're traveling through James. It will take us probably four, five, six months to go all the way through. We don't want to hurry that race. We want to take our time and really kind of meditate upon it. And you'll see the reason today of why we only take on a couple verses at a time. It would be easy this morning to, to, to try to take on a little bit more, but we wouldn't see the wealth of it. In fact, I'm kind of challenged this morning to take on three verses because these verses are just so weighty. And... Uh, I, I'm going to warn you up front, guys. We're going to introduce some theological truth, even though James isn't really known as a theological or doctrinal book. But it's all based, all of his practical living, all the application that he talks about has to be built on some theological things. And it's not to, to see the, how theological and how brainy we can get and how many big terms we can get. But, but, but information truly is essential to, to, to put belief and faith sometimes in our heart. You know, we've, God has not called you into a blind faith. He's called you into a faith on the truth that he's revealed to you. And so we have to kind of know some of that truth. We have to have some of those understandings on our heart so that we can say, yes, when that time of temptation comes, when that doubt comes, when we begin to question, we can go, no, I know this to be true. So I just tell you that up front. It, it, it's rather a simple sermon. At the same time, I'm going to introduce to you just a couple different words that may be unfamiliar with you, not to impress you, but to give you kind of that, that foundation going forward. Uh, how many of you know how to swim? Not, not well, but, you know, just you know how to swim. If you ever took swimming lessons, you know, it's amazing how, you know, they have different techniques. Most people learn swimming by going into either the baby pool first, the shallow end of the pool, and uh, that your feet are firmly planted on the ground. The water is only maybe up to your chest or something like that. And you kind of get acclimated to the water. You, you kind of understand, okay, this water is not going to hurt me. And then, and only then, a lot of times do you get, especially if you're a child, to put your face on the water. Remember that first time either you put your face on the water or you're teaching your children, you, they put their face in the water and they were just a comp. You know, they just had that sense of accomplishment that they did that. Well, there is another method to, to learn how to swim. And a lot of people don't use this. I don't know that I really even suggest it, but you go to the deep end of the pool and you just kind of throw the baby in there. And uh, there, there's actually that technique, and, and it's kind of like survival of the fittest. You know, the, somehow instinctively maybe the, the baby begins to, you know, in all that fear, you know, start paddling and, and begins to kind of understand. Well, I want you to know as we open up James chapter 1 after this introduction that he's a servant and that he's there to serve God, and he kind of tells uh, that this is a church for all the, you know, not only for the church in Jerusalem, but for all the tribes that have been scattered there. He jumps immediately into the deep in the pool. Perhaps one of the most challenging passages in all the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Without a proper understanding of that, without a really foundational understanding, it is like being thrown into the deep end of the pool. And our natural response to something when it says, okay, consider it all joy, or, or you know, it's like, how can I be happy in the midst of pain? Because he tells us to consider it all joy when you face various trials. No, no matter what version you have, you can't come away from any other understanding, whether you have the ESV, the NIV, the King James, whatever. It just says that somehow we're supposed to have joy in the midst of really painful 
really painful experiences. And so the first thing that our mind does is, okay, either he's just kind of, you know, this writer is asking for the impossible, or that he doesn't have any connection to the real world, or that somehow God really doesn't care. That God would ask me to put a, is he asking me to put a smile on my face in the midst of of hurting pain? I'm going through this in my life. I'm going through this challenge in my life that is deeper. It's not just a, a cut. This is, you know, something is being severed in my life. I, I'm, I'm losing my marriage. You know, the, this mate that, I've, that I said I'd do to the promise of death has decided to leave. Folks, in the midst of that kind of pain, does God say, count it all joy? <laughs> does he play like Annie in the background, the sun will come out tomorrow? Is that the kind of God that we serve? No. And so we have to have an understanding, you know, for him to say count it all joy when you fall into these various trials, when you come into the the most hurting times of your life, what is he saying? What is it that he is really asking us to do? And so this morning, we're going to look at this really difficult passage that sometimes we kind of scoot past because we just think, I don't relate to this whatsoever. But I promise you, get this, guys, before we even get started, it is the deep end of the pool. It's not so much the deep end of the pool intellectually, you know, theologically. I mean, we do have to have a foundation. It's not that, okay, if you really get this, you are super smart. You should go on to seminary and get a degree. James is calling us into maturity of, of Christ-likeness. And instead of kind of putting us in the baby end or the shallow end and saying, okay, I'm a, we're going to take a step at a time and the water comes up to here and then the water comes up to here and then finally... Okay, Bobby, put your head under the water for a little bit. He doesn't do that. He just kind of throws us into this deep end of the pool and says, I want you to understand from the very beginning that this is the call of God for you to have a maturity. And that maturity is Christ-likeness. Now for the theological big words. Imperatives and indicatives. An imperative is what God has commanded us to do. When you see something in the Bible like a command or, you know, it says do this, it's what we call an imperative, okay? An imperative, uh, a lot of times we focus on that. We look at the Ten Commandments and we're going, okay, God has just asked us to do these ten things. And we start adding other things to it. Man, we're supposed to love our neighbor as we do ourselves. Oh my goodness, I'm supposed to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. And we start seeing all these lists of things, and, and it's easy for us to make our relationship with God a religion. And, and I promise you guys, one of the easiest things, probably one of the things most mistaken in American Christianity, is that we have made much more about morality than we have about God. I'm not going to apologize for the imperatives that are in the Bible. It's filled with them. James, in 108 verses, has 60 imperatives. In 108 verses, there's 60 things, if you just want to go through and start counting, you know, that he tells us, okay, this is what God has called you to do. But James, and I want you to have this understanding, has understanding that every imperative that we have in God's word is always based, now another theological word, on an indicative. The indicative is what God has already done. God never asks, okay, Ricky, this is what I want you to do. Now, I haven't done nothing. I just want to see, you know, I'm throwing you in the deep end of the pool, but, but I sink or swim. No, everything, every time that we see an imperative in God's word, it can always be linked either directly in that same verse or in the verses before with an indicative. Now, again, my object this morning is not so that you could go home as, you know, the Bible is filled with indicatives and imperatives and this is what this is. I want you to understand how this works. 
Because if you get this, even if you forget these words, you will really begin to understand God's call upon your life. When we look in the Bible and we see an imperative, we see a command, we see do this, it is always relating back to what God has already done. Let me give you an example. And we see this throughout the, uh, the whole Bible, but especially in the New Testament. Uh, Galatians 5.1. Just one example. Okay, Look at this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Okay, Who did that? You or God? God did. So, so he gives this indicative. This is what Christ has done. He died on the cross for us. And, and now because of this, he, he died so that we could have this freedom. Now look at the imperative. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Because Christ has died, completely died, risen again for the completeness of your sin, you don't have to go back and live like you used to live. Now, am I going to sin every day? Yeah, man, I fell every single day. You probably fell every single day. Whether you came to know Christ when you were 10, 15, 25, 35, 50, that didn't end sin in our life. But it sure did end the penalty of sin in our life. That's been fully paid for. It's been completely covered. So we see verses like this that have an indicative of what God has done, but then out of that grows this imperative. Okay, because of this, because what God has foundationally done, now you can live this way. Here's a very loose way to kind of relate to it. You put your kid through college. Okay. That was an indicative. That's something you've done. But now you say, okay, I kind of want you to go get a job. This would be great if you got a job now. You know, that you, you're able to go out, and, and because of this, what has been done for you, now here's a great way to go, to use that education to further yourself. Now, it's very loose, very loose of an example there. But it's out of that indicative of what has been done for you by God and this theological truth of what he's already accomplished that we have these imperatives. That is essential, guys. That's essential for us to understand that relationship between what God has done and what we have done, are called to do, if we're going to read this text. Because God is not throwing you in the deep end of the pool saying, hey, man, I know you're facing the most hurting time in your life. I know your marriage is a wreck. I know that you just lost this loved one in your life. I know you just lost your job. You don't know how you're going to pay for your bills. I know all these things are going on in your life. But, you know, hey, count it all joy. That is not this passage. That Somehow you get thrown into the deep end of the most hurting times of your life, and God just wants to see, can this person swim or not? It's all based upon an indicative. James doesn't say it, and that's why it can be confusing at times. But it's there. James would readily agree, uh, agree that the indicative here is the sovereignty of God. Now, again, that's kind of theological. I would imagine many people here, if you, I said, what is the sovereignty of God? You'd be able to say, well, that's kind of like he's in control of everything. He's all-powerful. You know, isn't he kind of like all-knowing, all-powerful, all this and, and all those big theological words? Yes. But basically, what it means there is that he's really the ruler of all things. James, understanding 
that God is the ruler of all things, that he knows all things, that he's all-powerful to all things, can write this command to us to consider it all joy, even in the midst of the most trying times. See, if we don't get that kind of principle that this is all based on what God does and is doing and has done, then I've placed upon you this morning, and James has placed upon us today, the heaviest weight. He's thrown us not only into the deep in the pool, but he's put a thousand pound weight around our neck when he pushed us in. You try to do this without the strength of God, without the finished work of Christ. You try to do this on your own and just become a better person. Not only are you trying to tread water in the deep end of the pool where you can't touch bottom, but you've got a thousand pound elephant on your back, guys. It is impossible. And so let's not mistake what, what James says here. Uh, let's read this together. James 1, 2, 3, 4. I'll read it out loud. You just kind of follow along either on the screen or there in your word. Count it all joy, my brothers. Now, he's, take notice of this is for Christians. If you're, not, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. The invitation is to come and know Christ this morning. But, but he's not saying this to the, all the population of the world. These are the people who have trusted Christ for their salvation. And so this is the body of Christ. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's deep into the pool kind of truth. And sometimes we need to know maybe what a passage isn't saying before we can really understand what it is saying. And I want you to tell you right up from, he's not saying that no matter the difficulty that you're supposed to smile. That is not what James is commanding you to do. This is not what God is commanding you to do. He is not saying be happy about terrible things that happen in your life. Happiness has nothing to do with it. Joy and happiness are two entirely different things. One based on the external, one based on the internal. Joy coming from inside and grounded truth. Happiness, hey, I just got a raise. <laughs> Sadness, hey, I just got fired. External things that happen to us and kind of motivate our emotions going left and right like a wave going back and forth. Joy, isn't that why? Because there's something internal. It's, there's a truth that ever exists. So, so he, he's telling us here, you know, man, not, not just, hey, put a smile on it. He's not, again, saying, keep your chin up. Man, if you want to be a good Christian, even when you're going through the most trying times of your life, man, good Christians just smile. They're happy about these things. That is not what he's saying. So if he's not saying that, what is he saying? Because God is sovereign. Now, again, what does sovereign mean? It means that he is uh, everything. Everything is ultimately under God's control. I had a seminary professor that explained it this way. Every cosmic piece of dust, every atom in all of being is under the control of God. Now, having said that, we've got to be real careful. Because if we just take that, we are very quick to, to take sovereignty and power with something called causation. Okay, if you are that powerful and something bad happens, God, then since, you know, you're powerful, you're over all things, you must have caused this to happen. No, the Bible never says that God is the cause of all things. God would never cause sin to happen. How would a holy God ever cause sin to happen? 
But it does mean this, and this is where I struggle as a pastor, as a theologian, as, a, as somebody who would aspire to follow Christ closely. It does mean that if we have a sovereign God, that nothing happens without at least God's allowance. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with that sometimes. Not so much when somebody does something to themselves. I mean, I have sorrow for that. You know, somebody just makes a bad mistake, they make a bad choice, and then they have to kind of pay the repercussions. And, you know, that creates a sadness in in my heart as a pastor. But there is that kind of part, well, you know, you shouldn't have done it. And and it's not, you know, that you're making light of where they are. You just kind of go, man, that cause and effect. Where I struggle, guys, being, being very real with you, so when that report comes on the news and it says, you know, that they count, caught this child molester who had molested a two-and-a-half-year-old child, and I'm going, okay, God, glad that they caught them. But God, if you know all things and you're kind of in control of all things, why did you not stop that? That two-and-a-half-year-old could not. They couldn't stop it. How can you be a holy God? How can you be a good God? How can you be this God that I want to follow if you allowed that to happen? It's hard stuff, guys. And yet, you can't have sovereignty on, on the good things if you're not going to have sovereignty in a world that is filled with evil. God doesn't cause that evil. He's not the instigator of that evil. Does he allow evil? Yeah. Could he have kept Adam and Eve from sin in the first place? Yes. But he gave free will. And somewhere, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man intertwine. And even the greatest theological minds of history said, we don't kind of know how that all works together. The question this morning, can you trust God on this? Number one, can you trust that God, can you really believe that God is sovereign? Not only that he knows your name as we just think, that, that he really knows all things. See, that's a big understanding. That's a big foundation that we have to kind of come to, have that faith, because James is all about a book of faith. Not of complete understanding, but faith. Have you ever done something out of faith and you didn't have complete understanding? How many of y'all ever got married? Man, I don't have complete understanding, but faith, you know, I love her, she loves me, I'm going to go forward, you know, we're going to make this commitment. And yet we live in a world, folks, where sometimes it doesn't always work out. And, and so there's enough of this other that comes in there and goes, okay, man, I don't know that I'm going to take this step. It's hard stuff. We, we find out that life isn't just a little box, that if you do this, this always happens. If you do this, this always happens. Wouldn't that be great if there was just a, a, a flow chart of life? And if you did this, automatically you went down to this part of the flow chart? And after you made this decision, I mean, at that point, man, we just followed the flow chart. We look and say, okay, I do this. Ooh, that really turns out bad. I do this. This really turns out good. That doesn't take faith. All that takes is looking down to what the next box is. I promise you guys, I don't have to tell you, you're living it along with me. That's not what life is. Is there cause and effect? Yes. The Bible says you reap what you sow. There are some things you do this and this happens. At the same time, there's this amazing grace that we sang about this morning that even though I deserve this, this would be the natural effect of what I, I have or the, you know, the causation of my own sin, that God doesn't make me pay for that. Why? Because he put it all on Christ. 
So what we come up with is it's not this neat little way to live life, flow box to, you know, to, to box to box. What we have is, wow, why did that person do it and they got away scot-free and this person did something half as bad and, man, it blew up in their face. Have you ever wondered that? Especially if you're the one that did something half as bad and it blew up in your face. I mean, we really don't question the mercy and the grace of God and, and all that when we're the one going, made it. Man, I could have really paid for that. We do tend to question God when we're the one that did something half as bad, a quarter as bad, one-tenth as bad, one-hundredth as bad, and it seems like we, it just blew up in our face. So what is James saying here? He's building this all on one foundation. You can call it theological truth. You can call it, call it whatever you want to, but the sovereignty of God. That God truly is uh, ruling and, and, and controlling and, and commanding, not so much causation, not that he's causing all things to happen, but truly he is over all things. There is nothing beyond God where God has to wait and wait for a result. You and I, we, we make decisions, we wait for results. God never has to do that. God is never sitting there, man, I wish that would have worked out. God sees all things. He's, time is not an element of God. That right there blows me away. You don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. You have your plans. Or you have no idea what's going to happen in five minutes. God knows all of history, all of eternity. He knows everything. Look at verse 3, James 1, 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word know there is, is a knowledge. It's not just kind of a thinking, it's a knowledge. You just know. Not just because you know, but you know from experience. You, you have this knowledge that, where do we get this? From God. From God's truth. And, and that word know there, it means understanding. It means that, uh, uh, that it is essential. You take that word out of verse 3, I don't think James can make the claim that he does in verse 2 to count it all joy. But because that imperative, count it all joy, when you're going through all kinds of trouble in your life, is built upon an indicative that God is sovereign, that you know that this is truth. So he builds this, and in this knowledge that he's talking about, this knowing that you know is that God is in control, that he's not wringing his hand. God is never sitting there. You know, you and I, we wait in anticipation. God has never once wrung his hands going, man, I hope this works out. Never once. Does it occur to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? It's one of my favorite phrases. Right when I think I'm kind of like, you know, up there with God, kind of, okay, man, you know, God, you and I, we're just walking like this, and and you're giving me this this way to do life. Everything occurs to me. Woke up this morning, I saw that Carly had on this orange shirt. I said, okay, we don't usually dress. In fact, it's one of those things I go, okay, you know, if she had on orange, I'm going to wear blue. But it's Mother's Day. And I'm going, you know, that would be sweet. That would be just a little affirmation. Man, love you. You are a great mom. We can be twinsies. You know, it's just one of, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you, you kind of, 
it did not occur to me, I'm reacting to something, rightly or wrongly. (laughs) But it occurred to me. Nothing ever occurs to God. So remember that. Put that in the back of your mind. That's kind of free this morning. Nothing has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God. It really does give us some peace in the midst of the unknown. So the first thing that James is really telling us, there's three things that we can know here, this knowledge. When he says so that you can know three things that you can know for sure this morning based on the truth of God's word when you're going through trials. Number one, you can know that our trials are not unknown to God. Have you ever prayed informing God of how bad things are? It's an easy trap to fall into. God, if you would have been there today at the workplace, and you would have seen the way, as if, okay, God, I'm hesitating so you can go get a pen, so you can write these things down. Nothing ever occurs to God. And one of the first things that James is trying to settle here is, do you, do you know that there is nothing about your trial, there's nothing about your difficulty that is unknown to God? You don't have to pray to inform God. You should pray. You should bring your trouble to God. But you don't have to say, and God, this really hurts. This hurts more than I've ever hurt before, God. Maybe the conversation in reality would go like this. God, 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 my heart is broken and God, I'm facing the biggest challenge in my life. My husband just... And you hear this still small, small voice in, in your prayers. And, and 97,471. And that still small voice of God says, there's nothing random about it. 97,471, that's the number of hairs on your head. And if I know that about you, I know the deepest need of your heart. You can tell me, you can share it with me, but you're not informing me. I know your name. I know everything about you. I know your heartbreak. I know the challenge that you're there. Folks, we will never have to convince God to pay attention to us. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What do I know? I know that God is omniscient. That means that he knows all things. And this assures, assures me that I never have to inform God of the details. I can. I can share those. But there's not a need for God to have knowledge of my situation. He's not dependent upon me explaining it in the right way. Well, I don't know about you, but that relieves me of having to use the right words in a prayer. And what if, what if I just don't pray as nice as that guy in church? Man, I know God heard that prayer because that was pretty convincing. If I was God, I would have said, Man, I am right there with you, brother. 
but I just don't know those words. I don't know how to explain that to God. Let it occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God. That if he knows the number of hairs on your head, he knows what's, what's really, really important. In fact, Jesus one time, he was trying to explain, and he was actually, it was a little bit of an adversarial, uh, adversarial type of uh, uh, thing against some of the Jewish leaders and, and that they were hiding sin in their heart. They, they acted like if they did things in the dark of night that God really wouldn't know what's in their heart. And, and that's where we really get that whole number of hairs on your head. Here's the context of it. Luke, Luke chapter 12, verse 6. Jesus says, the words of Jesus, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Okay, that's the indicative. Here's what God has done. Here's the imperative. What? Fear not. He didn't say, fear not. This is all on your shoulders. You better be a strong guy. I said, here, this is who God is. This is what God has done. And then he sends us in a direction, guys. Fear not. Fear not. You are of more value than the sparrows. So the first thing we don't have to worry about is, is that God doesn't know this. Second thing that we can know, since all this is based, you know, he says that you can know something. Second thing that we can know this morning is that even our trials are not unplanned. This is a touchy one. This is a dicey one. Because it is really hard for us, again, I'm going to use this word, causation. It is really hard for us to separate what happens and power and authority with causation. That when we hear that report on the news that this two-and-a-half-year-old has been molested by some sick individual, that just because God allowed it, that God actually kind of caused it, it's not the truth. It does mean, however, and this is still hard to digest in my little human brain, that God allowed it. I mean, it really is. And if you struggle with that, then we're in, you're in good company with all of us. Here's how it applies to your life and my life, though. But we can know that not a single thing that comes in our life it was unplanned by God. Not that he caused it, but that he doesn't have knowledge of it, that it somehow there's not even a, a purpose in it. You see in verse 2 and 3, look at it again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word trials, this testing in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This word testing is not so much a pass-fail test as it is to produce something in your life. You take a test oftentimes so that you can have this knowledge for further maturity in your life. So it's not so much that God is sitting there going, okay, man, a pass fell on the deep end of the pool, as much as he says, okay, you're out there, and there's actually something that's going to be you know, useful for, for later on, but this was not unplanned. 
So, Bobby, are, are you really saying that, that we are to believe that, that God knows even the junk that's going to happen, all the bad stuff, the, the, the things that just don't make sense whatsoever, that God kind of knows that? And he still said, count it all joy? I'm not saying that, but the word is. And I can't water it down, guys. It is hard to digest, but I can't water it down. I did a study one time, favorite verse looked up on the Bible. Anybody guess what it was? A lot of people think maybe John 3.16. Anybody know? Jeremiah 29.11. Anybody know what that verse says? This is God speaking. For I know what? This is God speaking and he says what? I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. How many of y'all have ever read that before and it just frightened your day? Man, I, I serve a sovereign God and I needed to know that I'm not in control, but that God is in control. Well, you can't take sovereignty with the good things and kind of throw it away on the bad things, guys. It doesn't work. Sovereign doesn't mean that. You're only sovereign in good things. You're only sovereign in holy things. You're only sovereign in things that give me a hope and a future. If you're sovereign, if you're in complete control, you have not only knowledge, but there's actually a kind of a plan. Not a causation, but even a plan for the things that are hard. One of the leading verses looked up on the internet. And one of the second leading ones, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We, we kind of cling to that in the midst of our heartbreak, in the midst of all this thing falling apart. Hey, we know that God's going to work this for good. But have you ever, ever, ever read verse 29? He actually shows us where this is going. Verse 29 says that we can be more and more... What? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, what? Conformed to the image of the Son. He says, this testing, it is not pleasant, but it is effective. It is have an effect on your life. It is producing something. I want you to know that it's not just empty. You're not left just with pain. What can we know this morning? How can we count it all joy? By knowing and then acting in faith upon that knowledge that we serve a sovereign God, that he knows our difficulties, that he even, this is a hard one, that he has plans for those difficulties. He didn't cause them all the time. Sometimes he did. But he didn't cause bad things to happen. He didn't, certainly didn't cause sin. He's not the author of that, but he certainly had it in the midst of, of, of our life. And the third thing is that we can know that he's working toward an end. If you just had Romans 8.28 without 8.29, the object of this working would be good. How many different definitions do you think you could come up with of good? In your mind, what is good? Nice job, beautiful family, Retire when I'm 27? I mean, I can interpret good in a whole bunch of different ways. 
But Paul in Romans 8.28, he, he gives us the, the interpretation. He, he tells us what this good is working for. This good that he talks about in verse 28 is that we're going to be more and more like Christ. Truth number three of why we can consider it all joy, not be happy about it, not put a face, a smile on our face, not just chin up, sun will come out tomorrow. The, the third reason is that we can know that God's, that these trials are not unpurposeful to God. Look again, verse 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith, it produces, in, in the ESV, steadfastness. Your Bible may say uh, a, a word like endurance, perseverance, patience. He's working towards something. And what is that? That's a maturity, a Christ-likeness in your life. He is working toward an end. And he's working all those things, not just for good, but that you could know Christ, that you could have a peace in that, uh, in the midst of that trial. Uh, the word there that is used when it talks about this maturity, he's working to a place of maturity, it's used in other places in the Bible. And the root of that word is actually used by Christ in his last words. You remember the, the, the last words of Christ? Three words. Anybody remember? I heard it. It is finished. Same root word that James uses here. He says, that here's where, where are your trials? Where are your troubles? Where is this all this heartbreak going? Same word that was used by Christ on the cross. It is finished. It's complete. It's completely done. Same root right there. Was the cross painful? Not just in a physical way. Was it painful spiritually? All those? Yes. Was it the most devastating day in one way in all of human history? Yes. Was it the most glorious day in all of human history? The death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus could say, not happily, he didn't say it with the, you know, sun will come out tomorrow, in fact, three days from now, but sun was, it's not just what he's saying. He said, it is finished, this trial, this, this, what God has called me to, but I complete it. Why? Because I know he's working it for good. And I know that there's this guy, Bobby Lincoln, that 2,000 years from now is going to need that salvation for him to be redeemed to me, a holy God. Because I have already seen that Bobby is not this perfect specimen of a human being. And he fails more than he has victory. And so Jesus proclaims, it is finished. James says here, in the midst of how can we count in all joy? Because God is working to produce a maturity, an endurance, a steadfastness. There's a completeness that I believe that he will continue to be working until our last breath. And only then, in glorification of what God does, will there be that complete completeness. But God loves you enough that he's working toward that end. Does that make it easier to, to experience hurt in our life? I hope so. Not so much that all of a sudden, you know, the marriage gets back together, that the cancer goes away. The boss comes up and said, oh, did I say that you were fired? No, what I meant to say is that you're down for a raise. We're going to double your salary, and you only have to come in on Mondays. 
that's not what James is saying. He said, in the midst of all the trials and all the difficulties, all the challenges of life, you can know this. That because there's a sovereign God, He already knows. You don't have to explain it to Him. If you want to tell Him about it, if you want to plead your heart, He he will listen to every word, but he, He knows. He doesn't need to be informed. He already knew beforehand it's, it's part of a plan, a master plan over your whole life of using even those things that he did not cause. But he knew and in the full knowledge that he knows all things that it was going to happen. And you can know that God doesn't waste it. Any pain that you have suffered, any pain, it's not going to be wasted. He's working in you endurance, another version, patience, maturity, a fullness. I think most of us, as we close this morning, most of us readily admit that most of the growing times of our lives of real maturity, not just spiritual maturity, but real maturity in our lives, have come through difficulties. You know, when life is really easy, I just don't put my nose to the grind that much. You know, when, when, when you set your sail and the winds are always behind you, it's like, look, Tahiti, ah, Bora Bora, this is nice. I'll sail on forever. But, but when the winds are blowing against you, and you wonder, oh my goodness, is this hurricane going to take my life? It's like that old passage. There's no atheist in the foxholes. In other words, in, in, the, in the dire times of life, all of a sudden we, we go, okay... I'm not in control, so I sure hope that somebody is in control. In a way, that's what James is saying. If you're going through a fire, through a testing right now, please know that God knows. It's part of his plan. Not that he caused it, but it's part of his plan. He has knowledge of it. He will use it, and he will use it for the purpose, for a good purpose, and that is to draw you to him and to make you more and more complete in him. Let's pray together today. Father, thank you. And dare would we ever say thank you for the fire, thank you for the trials. Father, I don't know that I'm that mature yet that I could thank you for these things. But Father, I I just want to get that step where I can, instead of opposing these things, I can at least embrace them in, in a place of understanding that you're using those hurtful things in my life to show me more and more of who you are and to show me more and more of my need for you. And so, Father, I I want to be able to say, I thank you for the trials. I thank you for the fire. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to consider it all joy. Not to be happy, not just to put a smile on my face. Help me to really know that this is not wasted. And that it's actually very purposeful in my life. And let me rest not in the result of this fire, but the result of what you're doing through the work of the fire. I love you, Father. And I pray that you would just give us understanding of this great truth, this challenging truth this morning, as we pray this in the name of the one that made it possible, Christ our Lord and our Savior. Amen.
Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.